This week, we're joined by the wonderful Nicole Stott to talk about her life and her new book, Back to Earth. What life in space taught me about our home planet and our mission to protect it. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to her. But also, we're going to get you back up to date with all the latest news from the world of spaceflight. Please continue to get in touch with your thoughts on what we're up to. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Or leave a review on your podcast platform. Yeah, we've been doing it a year. You haven't done it yet. Come on, do it. Do it. It's time. Come on. And don't forget to hit that share button as well. It really helps us out. But right now, please enjoy episode 53 of the Space and Things podcast. Oh, my God. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 53 of our podcast. Emily, we're matching. We're wearing <laughs> matching <Yes>! t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, we're wearing we're both wearing the same shirt today. We've been doing this for a year, and this is the first time this has happened. Crazy. Yeah, this is nuts. We're both wearing our um high frontier shirt today. I'm actually surprised this is the first time this has happened. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I woke up this morning and I was like, man, you know, today's a taping day. I better wear a nice space shirt, yeah. you know, or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, oh, High Frontier, I'll do that one. That's a good one. And then I'm like, and I saw you and I was like, oh, my God, we're wearing the same <laughs> one. That's insane. That's pretty funny. Very amusing. Very amusing. Now, uh, before we get going, I'd, I'd just like to bring to people's attention that uh, you've had two blog posts out in the last month, Emily. Uh, one was a, a review of a book called Picturing the Space Shuttle by J.L. Pickering. And there's one called Envisioning the Space Shuttle from 1970 to 1980, which shows a series of photos from the development of the shuttle. And uh, this one was part of your Space in the 70s series, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I've, it's mainly just photos. Um, the the book by J.L. Pickering and John Bisney, uh, uh, Picturing the Space Shuttle, Um <laughs> Here's a free advertisement for that book. Uh, go get it. It's amazing. JL runs uh, Retro Space Images, and for ages he's been putting out some of the most hard-to-find space photos. If you're into that, it's just a, it's like heaven. So, yeah, this book is fantastic. There's tons of stuff in there that I'd never seen before. You got to go get it. But, um, I, yeah, I was kind of inspired, so I did a blog post last week, or this week. Yeah, whatever. Uh, sometime. <laughs> about um, the space shuttle when it was being, you know, when they were putting it together, basically, and when they were thinking about it, kind of before the, the space shuttle even flew. Because I think there's sort of, in the space community, there's sort of this myth that, oh, yeah, it started flying in 1981, and that was the beginning of it. And I'm like, they started developing that during, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. So it really took forever. It took a while for them to get it off the ground. Space shuttle is very complicated, so it, it took a while for it to get off. And I love the space shuttle, uh, obviously. And I don't know, I love that whole era during the 70s when they were like, well, we want to build this really crazy flying plane slash rocket, but we're not really sure what we're doing yet. <laughs> so we don't really know what we're doing, but we're going to try it, yeah. you know? So I kind of love it. And our budget's been cut. Again, and our yes. budget's been and cut. And we have no money. Again. <laughs> so, but we'll, we'll keep trying, but our budget's been cut. Again. Exactly. But I hadn't actually seen a lot of the photos that you put in your latest blog post, so I found it really fascinating. I'm going to put links to both of those blog posts in our show notes, as always. But before we get started, I would just really like to thank... Everyone who has purchased our one-year anniversary patch, which we talked about last week, uh, we only have a limited amount, and they're nearly all gone, which is quite something. So if you haven't got one yet, you can still get one. You can either sign up to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash space and things, or head over to our merch store on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, where we also have all the show notes, as we say every week. But anyway, that's crack on. Yes, let's crack on. Uh, that's never going to get old. No. One year on, and uh, crack on is still, still my catchphrase for this, I think. It's anyway. Still there. SpaceX Dragon, we're go for launch. Let's light this candle. So with this being the first show of year two of our podcast, we wanted to start strong. So we asked if former NASA astronaut Nicole Stott would join us to talk about her new book, Back to Earth, What Life in Space Taught Me About Our Home Planet and Our Mission to Protect It. Nicole is a veteran NASA astronaut with two space flights and 104 days living and working 
in space as a crew member on both the International Space Station and the Space Shuttle. She was the 10th woman in history to perform a spacewalk and was also the first astronaut to paint with watercolors in space, which she did on her free time on the space station. She is also a NASA aquanaut and was a crew member on an 18-day saturation dive mission at the Aquarius Undersea Laboratory. So we're very excited to talk to her today about all of the things she's been up to. All right, you are go for TLI. Welcome, Nicole, to our podcast. It's a real honor to have you here, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, But let's start right at the beginning. Uh, When you were a child, (laughs) did you want to be an astronaut, or when did that idea first come to you or look like it was a thing you might like to do? Yeah. Um, well, I could say, you know, I know that perhaps I don't look old enough to, you know, we'll just, you can put the filter on, um, to have seen that first moon landing, but I did, you know, when I was a kid and I think even at six or seven years old, you, you realize that's an extraordinary thing that you're witnessing, right. You know, sitting in front of the black and white TV with the grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, I, I, I think you get it. And then, you know, I remember my parents taking my sister and I out to look at the moon and just, kind of think about that and um so it definitely it definitely got into me there but i didn't i didn't grow up as a kid saying like some of my colleagues have said like from that moment i knew you know i was going to pursue being an astronaut everything i did was going to be about being an astronaut there i mean really there was none of that (laughs) and um you know i'm really thankful my parents shared what they loved with me and that and my mom very creative she was a nurse and you know if i was going to get to an art lesson or ballet lesson or something or softball practice whatever it's because you know she got me there and um and then one of the places she got me was out to the local airport where my dad built and flew small airplanes and i think that's where i got i mean the flying thing definitely got in my blood there and emily that's just right up the street at clearwater air park i you know i grew up in clearwater went to clearwater high where also Bruce Melnick went. We should do a show sometime with the two of us. But um, yeah, we should. I did not know he went to Clearwater High. Wow, I went yeah. to I went to East Lake, and my sister went to Countryside. So did you? Did you have my my brother? I know we got off. You know, you know, Dave, we got <laughs> go, off the go. topic here. But but let me just tell you. So if you went to East Lake, did you have my brother in law Greg Rocktoff for um, like sociology or geography or psychology? One of those kind of classes. I did not have him, but all my friends did. Ah, uh, Mr. Rocktop. Yeah, I remember him. I remember him, and I don't want to tell you this. Um, one of my friends had a crush on him. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's what I hear. That's what I hear. She no. would call him Mr. Rock your socks off. Oh my God! He's still there. He's still oh, there. Oh wow! Rocking it. Rocking that's it. All, rocking it. Yeah. Surfing, all of it. It's you know, small world, Dave. I'm sorry. No, um, I love anyway. that. I absolutely love that. We are called space and things. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> and things. The yes. and things and are important. Things. <laughs> and then the other thing um, <laughs> with the Clearwater High School thing is that, yeah, Bruce Melnick went there. And other than the high school where those twins, Scott and Mark, went, um, mm-hmm. Clearwater High, I still believe, is the only high school with two astronaut graduates. Nice. That's nice. awesome. That's pretty cool. That yeah. is really yeah. cool. So anyway, I, I, <laughs> I, I developed this love for flying, like wanting to know how things fly too. And that led me to studying aeronautical engineering over on the east coast of Florida at uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, where plug for my son, who just started Monday was his first day um, of college nice. um, over there. And that was just up the road from the Kennedy Space Center. And I started to see more and more like, man, if you want to know how airplanes fly, why would you not want to know how rocket ships fly? Mm, Absolutely. And here's this Kennedy Space Center that I've watched since growing up, things going on there. And when I when I graduated from high school, um, it was um, 80. That was 88 or 87. And I got a job about a year later at, at NASA at the Kennedy Space Center on the shuttle program when we were getting back into flight um, post Challenger. And I didn't think it could get any better. I mean, the jobs Hmm. I had there, but I was really fortunate to get to meet astronauts as we were getting the vehicles ready for them to fly. And, you know, I mean, I'm slow. It took me, what, eight or nine into the 10 years that I was there to think, oh my gosh, you know, 
astronauts, 99.9% of their job is not flying in space, <laughs> you know, and at least 80 of it was a lot, a lot like what I was already doing as an engineer. And I think that's what got me really thinking about it. Like, oh, maybe I could at least consider this. And you know, I, I spoke to a couple of people I consider to be mentors. And, you know, because up until that point also, I thought, you know, astronaut was one of those jobs only other special people get to do, right? Why would they ever pick me? I've not ever done anything that, you know, they'd pick some person to be an astronaut for or anything like that. And very thankful that I had mentors that just encouraged me to pick up the pen and fill out the application. I mean, honestly, they didn't say, you know, they didn't say, oh, Nicole, you'll make the greatest astronaut there ever was. It was like they gave me permission to do the one thing I had total control of and that I would yeah. not have done on my own. And so mm -hmm. believe me, I thank them when I see them. So long, long rambling way of saying no as a child. <laughs> Here's the short answer. No, I did not from childhood always, you know, think that's what, you know, what I would do. But I'm really thankful that I had experiences along the way that encouraged me. So uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but obviously before you be you came to NASA, before you applied to be an astronaut and before you became an astronaut, you worked for the space program. What kinds of experiences there you think uh, prepared you for your time as an astronaut? Wow, I think all of them, actually. Um, you know, everything from the chance to, you know, to work with the people there that that really, and, and you guys know this, I mean, in the space industry, people that work in it, I mean, they love it, right? And the people that were at the, the Kennedy Space Center and still are, I mean, they, I, I get the sense they really feel like, you know, the care and feeding of those spacecraft is their responsibility, right? It's kind of like in them to, you know, to do that. And, and those are great people to work with, you know, to, to get the chance to work with those kinds of people, um, especially later, if you're going to strap into one of those rockets, you want to know that the people care, about, <laughs> you know, care oh, yeah. about what they're doing. But I think every aspect of getting the space shuttles ready to fly, um, you know, kind of the integration of um, what needs to go into getting a rocket ship ready to fly was useful. Getting to be like up close and personal with the hardware, you know, having the chance, you know, not just to go, which is awesome, like in the orbiter processing mm -hmm. facility, just walk out and look up and like, oh my gosh, there's a space shuttle. But to get in the cockpit or to crawl around in the payload bay, to see some of the the details that you know underlie the panels that you know you end up interacting with later, just to know the the complexity, and then and then at the same time some of the simplicity of it too that you know is there. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I felt like I had a huge advantage when I started in the astronaut office because most of that to start off with is it's a lot like going back to school, and they want to teach you all about you know the spacecraft that you might fly on, and so. You know, I left this job where um, I was up close and personal with the hardware, with the technicians working right on it, to sitting in a classroom in Houston with PowerPoint slides about auxiliary power units and shuttle main engines and solid rocket boosters and stuff. And just thinking like, man, why don't we just go to KSC for a couple of weeks and hang out with those guys <laughs> in the hangar? It'll be a lot quicker and more fun, you know? But yeah, I think it was a definite advantage, quite honestly, and to have evolved through that, like to have this NASA job, whereas, oh, now I've got one where there might be this bonus of flying in space one day, um, which, you know, was a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And talking of experiences from before you flew in space, uh, one of our Patreons, John Wisenhunt, uh, I hope I'm saying your surname correctly there, John, but he got in contact and he said he'd love to know more about your opinions on analog missions. Did your own experience of the Nemo undersea mission help you when you eventually went to space? What, what did you find most valuable from that experience of being an aquanaut? Yeah, I think, you know, in the, the training that we do, um, all of it, you know, even sitting in those classrooms, you know, with the PowerPoint slides on the system stuff, all of it in one way or another is, you know, is ultimately about how are we going to work together as a crew? figuring out, you know, your own strengths and weaknesses, how you're going to, you know, first of all, acknowledge that you might have weaknesses, you know, that's a difficult thing to do, but, um, <laughs> you know, you got it, you got to go there and, and, and acknowledge that it's okay for your crewmates to have weaknesses too, right? Because they're probably going to be able to do something you can't do as well. And so figuring out how to bring all that together and some of the best ways that we do that 
are with those analog missions. Um, yeah, I love the question um, because, you know, we do a lot of those analog missions and I would even include the, the survival training that we do, you know, like winter survival, sea survival in the Soyuz out in the Black Sea and stuff, which all are some of the most fun training that you can do. And the whole time you're doing it, you're thinking, man, I hope I really don't have to do this in real life. But it's great that we're training just in case. But this is really fun doing it, you know, as you're practicing and training for it. Um, the absolute best of those was to live on the Aquarius undersea habitat for the, the Nemo mission. And, um, and I think it's because unlike going and doing, say, a 10-day trip out in the Utah Canyonlands, which I did do. When you go and you get down to 60 feet underwater where the habitat sits on the, you know, the floor of the ocean off the coast of Key Largo, when you get down there and you've been there more than an hour, you can't just swim safely to the surface, right? You know, your body's saturated with nitrogen. You've got to go through a lot of things to like, it would be a really slow ascent, you know, <laughs> you know, to get back up safely. So you're now in this place that is a real extreme environment. There's no minivan waiting outside the door. There's no, you know, like radio call to the helicopter to come get you. You really and truly have to figure out how to deal with everything, stuff that goes wrong, stuff that's going right at that place, 60 feet underwater. And that's absolutely what we have to do in space. You can't just float out the door in space without special equipment on. Same thing is true on, you know, the Aquarius habitat. The way you do that, you have to follow certain rules. Like when you're on a spacewalk, you know, you're not allowed to unhook and just, you know, tool around like George Clooney did in gravity or anything, right? <laughs> You've got rules of engagement about that for, for your safety. Same thing's true on Aquarius. You know, because we're at 60 feet and saturated, we can only go to the top of the habitat and we can go deeper all we want, but we can't go up any further. So we have to be, you know, really situationally aware of what's going on. And then you're living in a really relatively confined space with your crewmates, figuring out how you're going to manage all those strengths and weaknesses and differences and, you know, still have a successful mission. It is, it is awesome. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. And it was, it was the best analog to what it was like to live and work in space. And I'll just say, you know, you guys, you tell me to shut up anytime. So, you know, you guys know Ron Guerin, right? And yeah. he he was on, um, he and I were on our Nemo mission together. And it was um, with Dave Williams, uh, was our commander from Canada. He had flown before. And then we had a gentleman named um, Dr. Tim Broderick, who uh, was a physician, um, who did all kinds of like work with DARPA and really interesting telemedicine stuff and he was on our crew too but ron and i hadn't flown in space before when we did this mission and i mean i have this memory of sitting at the galley table with him um like the the morning we were going to get ready to come back up we had turned the whole habitat into this chamber you know to this lock that allowed us to you know decrease the pressure up to sea level pressure again and slowly bring us to a point where we could could leave and just sitting there looking out the window, you know, at this beautiful, like inner space environment surrounding us and just said to each other, you know what, if we never get to fly in space, this was really awesome. Yeah, it's just another cool. way to look at this planet, right? You know, to experience it from a whole new perspective that just, I mean, just opens your eyes up to the different realities and, you know, the awe and wonder of it. And I mean, I get goosebumps thinking of it now. And, you know, Ron and I never flew in space together, but we, we talk a lot about that, that Nemo experience and how just, just being blessed to be in that place and see Earth kind of surrounding you that way for an extended period of time was on par, I would say, with, um, with space flight. Awesome. That's, sounds incredible. That's really cool. Sounds incredible. I know I want to do something like that. They're pretty cool. There are ways to, to get down there and... Um, so we'll have, to, we'll have to think about that sometime, too. Maybe we could do a show from the galley yeah. table of uh, Aquarius. Yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. My family would die, but that would be cool. They'd be like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Oh, my God. Like, I would love it. I'd be like, see ya. I'll be back in a few weeks. All right. So you are, uh, I believe you're the first artist to paint in space. Uh, many of our listeners know uh, Nicole is an amazing artist. So were there any artists uh, 
space artist, general artist, whoever, who inspired you and how? Wow. I think, um, you know, our friend Alan Bean, definitely, you know, there's a man who was absolutely, I mean, at least for me, like hero of space flight, hero of art, hero of like friendship and mentorship, you know, those, you know, those kinds of things. He, he definitely did. Um, and in common with him, I really have always loved Monet and that kind of, you know, impressionist beauty kind of impressionism that, um, you know, is of, of like a Monet kind of, of art. Uh, but I'm, t you know, my, my art completely experimental <laughs> all the time. There's, there's no, no training at all um, involved with it. It's, it's just, is this going to be fun? And, you know, will I enjoy it? And maybe it ends up looking like something that it's meant to look like, I don't know. But it was definitely something that was, you know, exciting to me to have the opportunity to do in space. To me, it's like these things that we we do where we recognize that we're not just working there, right? You know, it's like putting the human in human space flight and mm. and bringing those things about humanity with us um, that that we that are part of us. And you know, I I did the first watercolor in space, but I credit. Um, uh, Richard Garriott with the first painting, even though he won't say it was a painting. <laughs> he <laughs> says it's painting in space, but he doesn't really, like he didn't paint it, right? So on his mission, he brought up like all different colored acrylic paints. It was very Jackson Pollock. Like he, he built a clear um, glove box and then he stuck the paper all around the walls of the glove box. And then he just squirted the paints all in, you know, into the box oh, wow. and wherever they floated themselves and hit the paper, that's what the painting ended up being. So a lot of dots, you know, colored dots on, on paper. Um, I think that was really very cool. And, nice, you know, yeah. his, his dad was an, an astronaut flew Skylab stuff. And, and then he, um, his mom was an artist as well and designed some patches for, you know, for their crew and things. So, um, and when Richard flew, he did a lot of outreach, little short outreach videos for, for people. And that was one of them it was like, what would paint do, you know, if you let it float around and hit paper in space. And of course, musical instruments and Karen Nyberg. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys need to talk to her sometime. Talk about an artist, man. W one of the most incredibly talented artistic people I've ever met. And, you know, she quilted in space. And of course, you can go back as far as Alexei Leonov to the colored pencils and mm -hmm. orbital sunrise drawings and portraits of Tom Stafford and, you know, you know, and their crewmates on Apollo Soyuz that there's all these like, I don't know, there's just all these cool human things about, you know, these people that we just tend to think of as technical, science-y, you know, folks that um, have so much going on. And um, I think the other person that later in life really affected me, maybe not so much with what I paint, but just in the way I think about things is our friend Al Warden, who you know, this poet that if you just met him, you might not think poet. No, <laughs> you know, that all. wouldn't be the first word that would <laughs> come out of your mouth to describe him. And yet, you know, when you get to know him and you talk to him, I mean, I just miss knowing that, that, that those two owls are on the planet with us because I think there was just such a way of commuting, communicating their experiences that was just so inspirational and just so them. Once you got to know them, it's like, wow, that's, you know, okay, that's them. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Nicole, can I can I just ask, what was the process of painting a watercolor in zero <laughs> gravity? Because in my head, that just sounds a mess. How did you keep everything together? Was it was it complicated or was that part of the fun of it? I think it was part of the fun of it. I mean, that's the way I like to think about, you know, everything that you do in a microgravity environment is that it's just all part of the adventure of it being different in some way. I mean, I, I like that a lot better than thinking I was going to go to a space station and everything I did would be exactly like we do, you know, down here on, on Earth and gravity. Um, it was different, but it was, and it was challenging, I think, but it wasn't impossible, right? Mm. And, and you said it. I mean, the biggest thing is just keeping your stuff organized. And that's true of all of <laughs> living and working in microgravity. Oh, yeah. You know, you float, your tools float. Every, I mean, everything floats. And on top of that, you've got the airflow coming through the space station to circulate. And it, I mean, Frank DeWinna lost his glasses three times. <laughs> each time, it would be like a month before they'd float up out. Oh, my somewhere. God. You know, and so thankfully, we had a couple extra pairs like 
are on one of mine. But it's it's weird because you think, oh, I'll just let this thing go and it'll just stay there or it'll at least be where I and then you're looking and you can't see it and the way stuff pops up out of nowhere. It's like you got to be really careful. I mean, I had a time where I'm floating through a module and I'm like, that's weird. What is that? You know, and I'm kind of floating. And as I come up on it, it was this pencil like point and on just floating, you know, floating. And you oh boy. I mean, if you just kind of encountered it, it wouldn't be a problem. But if you were flying full bore oh my and just, God. You know, bounced <laughs> off the end of the pencil. Oh my be, God. You know, yeah. because the, it's weird, like this three-dimensional perspective, it's mm. like the, your eyes see things a little bit differently too. But okay, that wasn't answering how do you paint in space. <laughs> so you had to, I had to get everything kind of in arm's length, you know, distance and, you know, have my drink bag, my water bag with the water in it that I was going to squirt the little balls of water out to dip my brush into and, you know, my paper right there. Everything has Velcro on it because, you know, you want to stick it to your pant leg or to the wall or something to keep it all, keep track of it. But I wish, I mean, I wish I would have videotaped it, the whole process, because if I had activated that brain cell to say, okay, why don't you videotape it, Nikki? But I didn't. Uh, and thankfully, Frank, or not Frank, but Bob Thursk took like the one picture I have of painting in space. I'm so, you know, I hug Bob every time I see him, you know, to thank him for that. But it was just so cool. I think you could describe the whole way it's like to live in microgravity by showing what it's like to paint watercolors because of the floating, because of things behaving differently. Um, I mean, I have memory of the ball of water, like on the end of the straw of the drink bag and bringing the brush, which by the way, was Ronnie Wood's brush from when he was a kid. Wow. And um, like before I got, even got the tip of the brush to the ball of water, it's like the water wanted to move over on the end of the brush. It was just the weirdest thing. And I remember like stand, you know, standing there floating, looking at this ball of water floating around the end of the brush thinking, okay, so what like wacky, weird, magical, attractive thing just went on there to get that ball of water over to the brush before I even touched it, you know? And then the same thing happened when I, you, know, you have to carefully take that ball of water down to the paint and like the paint, it's like the paint reached out and the water moved over to the wow. paint without even touching the ball to the to the paint. And then the same thing, this colored ball of water moving back on the brush. It was just the weirdest thing. And, you know, once I got over that, then the painting, I mean, it was trial and error because if you actually touch the brush to the paper, the whole blob of color water would just move to the paper. And I wish I would have thought about it like, like Richard did with painting and thought, man, this is just part of the process. This is like microgravity painting. I'll just keep touching all these colored balls. But I didn't, you know, those were scraps that got thrown out, I think, you know. And then I figured out that I just had to like gently touch, you know, just barely touch the ball of water to the paper and kind of use the brush to drag the colored ball of water versus painting with the end of the brush. It was the weirdest thing. And it took me about two weeks to do one painting. And, and of course, you're not painting in front of the window, right? Because what you want to see is gone, you know, before you can get the brush to the paper. And, <laughs> You know, at yeah. five miles a second. So I just printed it out on a scrap piece of paper and worked outside my crew compartment every night. And yeah, it was awesome. Really, really cool. That must have been amazing. I can't, I can't imagine. I guess yeah. these days they'd, they'd probably try and set some streaming thing up so you people could watch it live. Wouldn't that be great it, though? You know? I, yeah, awesome. I, it would be so I, cool to do I that. I, I hope they're sure. doing some of that stuff. I just saw Megan just did another hair video, you know, washing your hair in space yeah. thing. And, you know, of course they did that. Um, the Space Olympic stuff, you know, a little while ago. It, it is it is really important though, isn't it? Because it yeah. does just humanize those guys up there for for everyone. And as you say, yeah. it's just, you know, I, I remember in the UK when T, Tim Peak was up there, and the access the kids had to him yeah. in the classroom was just amazing, and and it must have inspired so many kids to to try science, and 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 yeah. you know, they would they were communicating with an astronaut there and there from their classroom yeah. in the space. And and I love that that happens, but the little human touches and, and Chris Hadfield was yeah. so good at that as well with, with the videos he was making up there. And yeah, uh, you know, but that now it's so much easier. It is, you know, the internet is live. They've got the live interweb going on up there. So you can, you can on a pretty routine basis, you know, share pretty actively. I mean, I did Twitter up there, but I had to, you know, once a week I sent down five tweets and they'd go to my public affairs person who would post them for me because there was no, <laughs> you know, way to do that live. 
and I think NASA is even getting that it's important. You know, it's important to share the human the human side of human spaceflight. Absolutely, um, Emily. I don't know if you've ever seen. I've shown this picture in I've shown this picture in presentations before. It's this um, picture of our Expedition Twenty One crew, and it's when Guy Laliberté was with us. So there were nine people on board. And of course, Guy was the founder of Cirque du Soleil, right? And yeah. I mean, he grew up like a, you know, juggler or something on the streets of Canada and considered himself a clown. So he brought all of us a, a red clown nose um, to space. And actually, when he came on the station for the first time, he floated in from his Soyuz with this red, you know, red clown nose on. And he gave one to all of us. And we did our crew shot, our crew pictures with him in our, you know, our fancy blue flight suits. And then we did a, a number of shots with the red clown noses on all, you know, in different positions, floating different ways, peace signs, you know, all kinds of stuff. And for a, a quite a while, those were not releasable photos because there was this impression that we were having too much fun. Uh. It was, you know, that people might think that we're just goofing around up there, you know, and um and a couple of us pushed on it we're like we want to you know we want to show kids these pictures we want to share the, you know share these pictures with you know the audiences that we're speaking to and then we can talk to things like you know what better people to work with than the ones that you know you're going to enjoy your time with the best teams were like really get along right there's personality in the group of people that you're working with and at the same time you know when it hits the fan you know when things don't go as planned that these people are going to be the ones that have your back. And to me, that's the kind of picture we need to be using to show that, you know, but Absolutely. here's, yeah, here's this human <laughs> who has done some pretty impressive things. Who is like the best way for him to describe himself is artistically is as a clown and somebody who wants to connect, you know, with other human beings. And yeah, that was fun. There was a picture too, that we did on the launch pad before, Actually, I'm sporting my STS-128 shirt, you guys. Um, awesome. Today is the 12th anniversary of um, docking with station um, nice. on that mission. And we did a um, we did this both on 128 and then on 133, like uh, TCDT day, you know, so our practice countdown day um, out at the launch pad. And then when you get out of the vehicle, you get a chance to, you know, you're still in your orange suit. And you get a chance to walk around on the pad a little bit. And we did like this muscle shot, you know, the, you know, iron, you know, Mr. Yeah. Universe and whatever shot with the crew out there. And that was another one that was like, no, we got to hold back on this. We can't, you know, we can't really have astronauts looking mm. like they're goofing around on the launch pad. And they became some of the, like the favorite pictures. <laughs> Absolutely. No, they should be. So, so they, I think yeah. they've loosened up a little bit now, you know, they're allowed to do space Olympics and show it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like you can be working twenty four seven either. I mean, as uh, I mean, that just is a recipe for a mutiny, I believe. Absolutely. If you're, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is. It's true. I think this whole human and human spaceflight thing is becoming more and more important. I think NASA is is seeing that and you know starting to communicate that a little bit more. They've done that really cool down to earth series, you know, um, that I think people have really mm. been attracted to. Because I think people can make a connection then, right? Establish a relationship with this whole thing about people being in space and, you know, and hopefully be inspired to maybe want to do it themselves or for the kids to want to do it themselves. But even if not, to just have a desire to learn more about what's actually going on up there, which is ultimately all about improving life on Earth. Absolutely. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about your, you've got a new book coming out. I do. Now, um, Frank White, um, you, I know you probably know who that is, obviously, yes. has written, he's written a lot about the overview effect, which, you know, how those who have been to space or have had those types of experiences uh, look at Earth a little differently. So you have a new book called Back to Earth, which looks a lot different from most astronaut memoirs. This one discusses how your perspectives on Earth changed after your time in space. At what point in your space flight career did you view the earth as not just a place or a destination. And why do you think discussing earth in this manner is important? I think, you know, even for me before flying in space, it was like, I, I recognize, I mean, I knew I lived on a planet, right? <laughs> um, but I don't think I ever really actively thought about, wow, I live on a planet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all earthlings. 
only border that matters, thin blue line of atmosphere, right? Um, those kinds of things that are, they really are like our common ground, you know, with everyone. But I think it was really important for me um, to, to share that experience. And your question about when, you know, when did I realize? I mean, I think it came very quickly in, you know, in this, in the journey and perhaps even before going to space, kind of in the preparation of it, talking to other people about what they experienced seeing Earth from space. There was a really, um, I think, high expectation of what that was going to be like and kind of and the impact that would come from it. But like all things, you know, until you do it for real, you don't really know what what that's going to be. And man, overwhelming. I think it hits you really quickly. Um, I don't remember what I saw at the window the first time I looked out. I just know I was like, oh, my gosh. This is more stunning, more like overwhelmingly beautiful than I ever expected it to be just glowing and colorful and, you know, all those things that you might expect, but just like with the brightest light bulb you've ever seen turned on. Right. And then at the same time, like in that first viewing, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm actually here. <laughs> we just launched into space eight and a half minutes ago or however long ago. And I'm uh, first of all, I survived. I'm alive. It's woo. You know, there's that. <laughs> And it's like, holy moly, I'm floating in, in space inside of a, a spaceship. So there was that. That's, that's an overwhelming part of it, too, I think, to come to grips with. But in the end, I think whether it's the, this impression of the planet, you know, this looking at it out the window or having worked with this crew of, you know, this international crew representing 15 different countries peacefully, successfully there. Um, the fact that we built this mechanical life support system in space, right, to mimic as best we can what Earth does for us naturally, you know, thinking about the fact that that as a crew every day we're paying attention. I, I mean, imagine this, paying attention to how much CO2 is in your atmosphere, you know, because, you know, if you don't, you're going to die. <laughs> um, how much clean yeah. drinking water you have, you know, the integrity of your thin metal hull the health and well-being of all your crewmates. I mean, every day you're thinking about these things. And that's the kind of stuff I wanted to share was, you know, in all the complexity of it, you know, this planet, earthling, thin blue line, those are the simple things I came home with. And I want everybody, even if you can't travel to space or don't end up doing it, to like look around yourself and appreciate the awe and wonder that surrounds us every day. And, and, and just realize that the best way that we could live together here is as crewmates and not passengers. And that we have this just amazing model, you know, circling us 16 times a day to remind us of that. That kind of gives us the checklist for, for how to do it. And to look at how do you take seven people on a space station and the tens of thousands on Earth that are working that way and, you know, exponentially project that to the seven eight billion on a planet wow so uh when when does this book come out october 12th is the release date excellent not too long and it is very different emily I, I like that you said that too it's it's not it was never intended as a memoir although there are you know certainly anecdotal stories of time and space and growing up and stuff that play into it but i really wanted to showcase the work that's going on on the station um, you know, people are always asking, you guys get it too, I'm sure. Why are we even going to this space station thing? Why do we travel to, why are we spending all that money in space? Yeah. That, you know, it was all spent exactly. down here. And, you know, what are we doing up there that's done me any good lately, right? And and, th and then there's these people on Earth that we need to know about that, that every day are already living like Earthlings and crewmates. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to read this. Um, just one little follow-up. You said that the view out the window was obviously spectacular. Camera technology is, of course, getting better and better and better. So when we see images from the station these days, how good are they at representing what you actually saw? Yeah, I mean, they are so good now, right? Just the, you know, and in some of it, you know, some of the pictures that I see coming from station now, especially at night, you know, where you really get the good star field patterns in the, you know, in the view and stuff, the cameras are just so good at capturing the light now, some of which we might not even see yeah, true. Yeah, <laughs> necessarily yeah. to that same degree, unless we get it, you know, unless we really, really get it super dark in the space station, hood it out and, you know, do that. Um, but I'll tell you, 
visually speaking, what you visually see in those pictures and videos now, the really high def ones, I mean, even on my TV, on is it Apple that has the screensaver thing that's just showing views from space all the time? It's like, yeah. man, that's really good. That's a lot like what I remember seeing. But I think the thing that's different, and it's like any of us, we go on, you know, you go out to that park and now you're out in the grass and the trees and it's more than just what you see, right? It's what you're feeling and Absolutely. experiencing and parallel with what, what your eyes are capturing. And so um, when I look at the pictures um, and the videos, it, they are very much like what I remember seeing. Um, I, it's reminiscent to me of what I felt, but it's, it's not that same it's not that same thing of when you're physically there floating in front of the window, um, you know, to see it. Yeah. But I'll tell you, um, they are so good. I, you know, it would be wonderful. And I know Frank and others are doing things like this with like VR and, you know, Felix and Paul just did something up on the station where, you know, if, if, if I could go into one of those float tanks, <laughs> yeah. you know, and have that surrounding me, those views just surrounding me on the tub lid, <laughs> that would be incredible. I mean, that would be really, really incredible. We've got a question now. We've got actually we've got a few questions here um, from, from some of our Patreons. And this first one kind of, uh, I think it ties in slightly with, with that. So Lauren um, has asked, if you had the opportunity, and obviously there's plenty of uh, new companies out there, if you mm -hmm. had the opportunity to go back, if someone says, uh, said, hey, Nicole, come next week, we're going to take you up again, would you do it? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing is, I, I think I would want, um, you know, and I would take one of those suborbital rides. Don't do, do not um, get me wrong. I, I would love to do that, too. But I just want so many other people to have the experience that um, I would want to take a seat away from somebody for, <laughs> you know, for that, for someone, someone else to have that, you know, even for five minutes that like, oh, my gosh, view out the window. Um, I would love to go back. I would love to go back to the space station or a space station. I would love to go to the moon. I'm counting on a trip to the moon. <laughs> nice. Yes. Absolutely counting on it. And um, I might need to become independently wealthy uh, <laughs> somehow. To, well, that, well, that book, you <laughs> know. Do that. Yeah, that's it. That's why you write the book, right? You're going to write in the cash <laughs> on the book. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm counting on it. It's like I always say my last trip to space, not my final trip to space. Nice. <laughs> because I'm counting on the chance somehow to get back there again. Awesome. So Rish has asked, uh, was it easier going to space a second time around? Uh, do you have a favorite mission or are they kind of like children where you don't really have a favorite? Yeah, I don't think you can have a favorite, right? Um, and, when, <laughs> you know, I, it's kind of the question, like, what was your what was your favorite thing about being in space? It's like it's all kind of wrapped up and in this one big moment of being in space kind of thing. Um, there are things that are easier about it, I think, the second time. And I remember on my second flight, which was STS-133, which was a, a two-week mission. It was the final flight of Discovery. And we went to the space station, right? Um, but we were only there for two weeks. So, you know, I joked that they had to pull my clawing hands off the hatch <laughs> to you know, get me back in the shuttle to come home. But I was really fortunate that on that, that second flight, I was with some people that I had flown with the first time too. And one of those being Mike Barron. And when we were both on the station the first time, the cupola wasn't there. The cupola module wasn't there yet. And oh, so wow. our, our best views of Earth were in the service module with, you know, some of the windows, you know, Earth facing there. And then to go into the, the Japanese laboratory module and um, look, you know, kind of port um, across the Earth that way. But there wasn't this horizon to horizon view that the cupola gives you. And I remember... Um, we had docked to the station, you know, everybody's floating in in order onto the station and Mike and I went in together and it was almost like, first of all, it was like we were back in our second home, you know, it just, the floating was good. We felt comfortable already. We knew what, what handrail you had to push off of to get down to the other end of the space station. And it was like this silent challenge. We both come onto the station and the two of us could not fly fast enough to that cupola module. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the hope that the windows were open and that we'd get mm. to see this, you know, this view that we just hadn't seen before. But it was, there was no having to get used to flying, you know, through the, mm. the space station wow. again. There was no, which handrail do I grab? Oh, I'm not going to, I don't want to knock the 
computers off the wall or, you know, whatever. Um, it just felt natural to be there. And um, that was kind of cool to see how your brain, your muscle memory, whatever, kind of takes over, you know, with that. That is amazing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm hoping to get a ride up on one of those things. Yeah, someday. baby. <laughs> someday. We'll see. Yeah, I'll hit a ride with you. Anyway, we've got one more question, which is uh, just a little bit of fun. So you, you mentioned uh, George Clooney and Gravity earlier. So it, this... this uh, I probably should have asked it then, but it seems like a nice one to end on. Jen Jones has asked, uh, once you get back from space, do you seek out space movies or TV shows? And uh, do you watch them differently uh, as a result of your own space flight? Um, well, I had always sought them out even before fly flying in space. <laughs> and and yeah, I think, and, and maybe even before I looked at them a little critically, you know, like like anybody with any in any field, I think when you see a movie about what you do, you're like, man, we'd never do that. <laughs> we'd do that, you know? Um yeah. And, you know, for me, like some of my favorite space movies are, are ones like Galaxy Quest and, you know, Rocket Man and, you know, stuff like that, where technically there's probably not a whole lot of good technical going on it. But just the human interaction between people and stuff is so good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. <laughs> and, the you know, Clooney on, um, you know, Gravity was one of those where, I mean, I remember like really kind of edge of my seat um stuff going on there just because of the things you saw happening to the spacecraft that you would never want to see happen yeah in reality yeah. right and while you know while george out there kind of tooling around in the you know the emu with um you know no tether on and just oh you know just meeting sandra bullock for the first time while she's out at the end of it you know i mean these things like you don't even know your crewmates kind of thing you know the drama of the the hollywood side of it man they got the graphics the graphics were so good in that movie and to the point of like how they moved was just like watching sandra bullock fly through the station it's like man that is really good but the light on the spacecraft and the way things looked as they were coming apart and you know just stuff you would never ever want to see happen and yet they did a really good job graphically portraying that 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 really got me yeah, yeah. I, w I wonder whether there was a, a plan to shoot that movie or release that movie before the, sh the end of the shuttle because I can't imagine that would have been fun to to watch before going yeah. on the shuttle. I don't flight. know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But there was so much technically wrong with you know just the physics of a lot of the stuff yeah. that um, you know I got past all the other things because I'm like, okay, maybe that could never happen. Maybe that could never. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that movie was a little freaky, man. I I, I enjoyed it. But I was like, with the the horrible parts were going on, I was like, I, yeah. okay, no, I can't do this. Yeah, wow. just and I, the first time I went was with my mom and my sisters. And oh, oh no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, I'm already done flying. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at this point, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah the shuttle that, that that machine's done now. It's retired. It's yeah. Which is so sad. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. I know. Yeah. Uh, Emily, have you got anything? I I know. I think we're good, and this was an amazing interview. I I think we're at a good. Uh, stopping point. So thank you so much for uh, being on our show, and uh, we congratulations really for a year of mm. space and things. And thank you. You know you're rocking it, you guys. It's really, really good. Really oh, good. Thank you very much. Thank you yeah. so much. Our best. We're trying our best, and thank yep. you for being a thank part you of very it. Much. Now. Yeah. You know, the start of year two. We thought we'd start yeah. on a high. That's for sure. <laughs> I hope yep. we'll see you again this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, well. That's a way to start year two, isn't it? Yes, uh, that was just spectacular. Uh, I, I've talked to Nicole a little bit before, and she's just always the like. Whenever you get out of a conversation with her, you just you're always smiling from ear to ear. And um, I really cannot wait for her her book that's coming out soon because uh, I've read like every astronaut autobiography or biography that's been released. And there's a lot of really good ones out there, obviously. But I like that this one, um, I, I haven't seen this book yet. I, I don't have an advanced copy, but I plan on buying it when it gets out, uh, when it's released. But um, it, it seems to take a sort of a more unorthodox, I guess, approach to astronaut books. Like, it doesn't just talk about, I was born, and then I grew up, and then I went to space, you know. Yeah. Oh, you know, this one is more like, you know, how it sort of affected her worldview. And I love that. I think that's such a different 
um, uh, just a really nice way to, you know, look at that whole experience. You know, I, I just love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah, uh, agreed. Agreed. Jen, there were so many highlights in that interview as well, wasn't there? There were so, so many little moments where I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is so cool. Yeah. When she was talking about painting in space, that blew my mind because I never thought about that yeah. in my life. You're not using the brush as a brush. You're using it to guide the gobule of water and paint. Uh, just, just amazing. Just ah, amazing. I never thought about how different it would be to use watercolor in space because on Earth, water... I'm not an artist, but I've done a little bit of painting and, you know, watercolor is difficult. So... um yeah, I never really thought about it in that way before. And just to hear it from somebody who's done that is just absolutely mind-blowing to me because I'm like, of course it would be completely different from how you would paint here. You know, that's, oh my God. Yeah, there's so many highlights yeah. of this interview. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I liked how we went from the art side of it to talking about the humanization of human spaceflight and how connecting uh, to the people is really important and how NASA are beginning to understand this as well. Because when I look back historically at, at the stories that we know and love, Emily, you know, Albin got mentioned there, the fourth person to walk on the moon. Now, when I'm talking to people who don't know anything about uh, the Apollo program, I try and reel them in with the human stories. And the more you let people know about Albin, the more they want to know about the Apollo program because he's such an incredible person. And if we're going to connect with as many people as possible about space flight and inspire them to want to know more, it's through the human stories. That's what's really going to do it. It's letting them know about the people who are up there, who have been, who are going to go. That's how we're going to get people involved who don't have any interest in it at the moment. So, yeah, I love yeah. that part of the conversation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, um, this year when I did my talk at Space Fest, when I was writing the talk, I was doing it a lot about, you know, astronaut books and space literature in general. But mainly I wanted to talk about people. It wasn't yeah. really a talk about books as much as about the people and what they wrote in them, you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. whenever you read literature, it really just, you know, in the mid 60s, if you looked at a picture of like Mike Collins, for example, just throwing just pulling out an arbitrary, you know, astronaut name. If you looked at a picture of Mike Collins in the 60s, you would have thought he looks like an Air Force dude. You know, he looks like a fighter jock, whatever. And then you read Carrying the Fire and you're like, wait a minute. This guy has is like the best writer, you know, and it is really like sophisticated, you know. Why didn't we find out about that when he was flying? Yeah, why didn't we know? And I find that really frustrating. And I think actually it's one of the reasons why... The Apollo program probably got cancelled because the interest wasn't there because we didn't find out about these human stories. That's how important they are. You know, potentially, if they'd been able to get that story out, then more people may have connected with yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with you completely because if you look at, you know, Apollo 15, Al Warden was on it, obviously, and, you know, very different uh, set of personalities there, but with Al... I don't think anybody figured out who he was until like 40 years after the mission, you know, when he wrote Falling to Earth. Then we were like, oh, he's he's a poet. We didn't, you know, and uh, it's just nuts. You know, it's like I wish we'd sort of known more about it back then, you know, and and but I think back then it, NASA was less into the idea of humanizing people, you know, and making I think they wanted them to be, you know, astronauts and, you know, very very manly and stuff like that. I don't know of its time. It, and nowadays I, I love that. I think in the last decade or so, if you've watched NASA TV or if you just watched any space flight coverage, I think you see that people are being more humanized. You do sort of see the more fun parts of it. And you do see the more like, you know, parts where people try to depict their own experiences from it. Oh, absolutely. The, the SpaceX launches with the crew dragon. Like there's been three of them now, but the first one with with Bob and Doug last summer, I mean that was incredible. We, we for the first time, maybe you had that over there, but the first time in this country because the internet, uh, 
we could see all the aspects of the build-up to them going to the rocket. We saw them in in the suit-up room, and then we saw them walking through the corridor, coming out, and and then my favourite moment was they came out and got into the cars that took them over to the launch pad, but before that, they had their last moments with the family, and we're watching it. They've got their kids there and their wives and Bob and Doug are standing there and having a hug with them. And and especially with all the COVID stuff that was going on at the time as well, there was issues with that. And oh my God, I was just sitting here sobbing, but felt so connected, so connected to these two people and their families. And they're about to go off into space. It was amazing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think we do need to see, you know, more of that because I... Like I said, I think there are certain experiences. I, I hope there are certain experiences that are universal to a lot of people, you know, and that's, you know, connecting with people you love and connecting, you know, connecting to maybe art or, you know, seeing being a part of nature or something like Absolutely. that. And I, I think those experiences can be relatable to spaceflight as well. So ab- absolutely, I completely agree with you. Excellent. It's good to be in agreement. Uh, but of course, that interview was wonderful. And for those of you who would like to know more about Nicole uh, or her book, all the information will be in the show notes. Uh, and you can go and pre-order your copy right now or make sure you're following her on social media. And if you want to watch that interview the complete uncut version we did have to cut a bit out for time uh then you can do so on our patreon page which is patreon.com forward slash space and things but the show notes are the place to go to find out all things nicole stop and from every window we have a really spectacular view of the earth as well as the uh what surprised me the real real blackness of space i don't think i've ever seen So we've got a few news stories for you this week. Uh, We'll start with the launches, as always. SpaceX were back in business for the first time uh, since June the 30th. On Sunday, the 29th of August, they launched a Cargo Dragon spacecraft to the International Space Station from the Space Coast in Florida. And it arrived on astronaut Megan MacArthur's 50th birthday, to which she has said... No one ever sent me a spaceship for my birthday before, uh, which I really loved. Uh, The uncrewed Dragon capsule had 4,800 pounds or 2,200 kilograms worth of supplies and scientific experiments on board. It seemed like we were talking about a different SpaceX launch every week earlier this year, specifically with them launching their own Starlink satellites. Now, there's been a major space event this uh, last week called the Space Symposium, where quite a few of our news stories are going to be coming from this week. But the SpaceX president and chief operating officer, Gwyn Shotwell, uh, explained why there's been a delay in their launches. It's because they've been adding laser terminals to the next batch of Starlink satellites and it's taken a while to get that right. Now, the lasers are being added so they can better get the constellations of satellites to communicate with each other without needing multiple ground stations. I think I've got that right. And even if I have, I've simplified it massively. But as always, there will be articles in the show notes where you can read up all about this and all of our stories, actually. And you can find these on your podcast platform Or if they don't work there, if the links are broken, just head to our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, and they're all on there, sometimes with videos as well. Uh, They're either on the front page if you're listening to this episode as it comes out, or within the archive. But also talking to things that Gwyn Shotwell said at the Space Symposium, uh, she also said there is currently a shortage of liquid oxygen, which could upset future launch dates this year, as hospitals treating COVID-19 rely on liquid oxygen for ventilator treatments. So yet this is another reason why we need to encourage people to stay safe and get vaccinated. If you want space launches, you need people off the ventilators. Yes, go get your shots, everybody. Absolutely. All right. Also, on Thursday, August 26th, Blue Origin returned to flight for the first time since their first crewed flight in July, this time on an uncrewed suborbital flight from their West Texas base. It was the company's 17th flight for one of their new Shepard rockets and was the eighth flight for the RSS HG Wells, the capsule uh, dedicated to uncrewed jaunts. It carried a number of experiments aboard and some art projects, too. But perhaps the most interesting launch attempt this week happened in Alaska. The California startup company called Astra had their third orbital test flight on August 28th, 
but it didn't go according to plan. <laughs> if you haven't seen the video, you really need to. It felt like it was going to be one of those old school NASA launch attempt videos from the 1950s with the rocket going sideways at first. But it eventually did manage to start moving slowly up and managed to reach, uh, I think, 2.5 miles up before the engine shut down annoyingly. Um, a piece of booster then broke loose and the rocket lost control, so the flight was terminated. It has since been said that one of the five engines shut down during liftoff, which is why the rocket went sideways. Um, I hate laughing at this. But the others corrected the error, which allowed it to get off the ground without disaster on the launch pad. So, yeah, it did a little cha-cha slide before it left. <laughs> <laughs> cha-cha slide. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm, I think it got higher than that, than two miles. I'm pretty sure it got up to 20 miles. That, I may have read it incorrectly. All I know is that uh, I was watching that launch and I was like, what the what <laughs> what is this i've never seen this happen in my life oh my god and i hate laughing because um you know i feel bad when anybody has a launch failure but i was not expecting that it was just so, that yeah. it just went sideways it stayed vertical it just <laughs> like moved across it was like what's going on and you really i just assumed it was just going to blow up there and then because that's in the old Me too that's what you used to see and then all of a sudden it starts coming out of the cloud and you're like, oh, no, it's going. It's actually going. You have to see this video. It will be in our show notes on our website. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's nuts. Like, all I remember was I'll talk a little bit more about it and then I'll drop it. Like, I, I, I did a, I stopped like one of the stills from the launch. Like, I, I stopped it and I paused it. And then I was like looking at how far the launch pad was from the rock. And I was like, oh, my God. Absolutely. I've never seen oh my God. anything like it. Crazy, 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 crazy. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're saying they got some good data from it. So hopefully they've learned. It's still very much a new company. So uh, exactly. You know, good, good luck to them in the future. And thanks for entertaining us with that one. I appreciate it. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, on the International Space Station, uh, as well as the new cargo ship arriving, we've got a few stories here. Firstly, the seven astronauts on board posed with an Olympic torch to celebrate the start of the Paralympic Games this week in Tokyo. The torch obviously wasn't lit, but I do love it when uh, when the Space Flight Station do this kind of thing, as we talked about earlier. Uh, really does humanise the people for me, which is always great. Uh, also, there was a planned spacewalk that had to be cancelled because NASA's flight engineer, Mark van der Hey is, uh, is currently suffering from a pinched nerve in his neck. Now, fortunately, the spacewalk isn't time-sensitive and the pinched nerve isn't considered an, an emergency in space. So they are able to rearrange the spacewalk without any drama. Uh, but there is potentially some drama up there, as Russia have reported that there are some cracks in their Zarya module. Uh, now, so the exact term they're using is superficial fissures. And it's not yet been reported if these have caused any air to leak from the module. Uh, this was actually the first piece of the ISS to reach orbit when it launched in November 1998. So it's, it's been up there a while. Um, they have in the past been able to fix cracks on other modules, so hopefully they'll be able to make the required repairs here as well. And more news from the Space Symposium event. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has revealed that the station should last until 2030. Then he expects uh, commercial labs to take over in in orbit. I'm not going to lie, I'm, I'm going to be gutted when the ISS is no longer there. I, it feels like it's part of the furniture of, of our life now. It's, it's been yeah. such a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been almost up there, God, almost half of my life now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was, I think I was 20, I was 20 when they launched it. And now I'm 40, the first pieces, and now I'm 43. So yeah, I've been watching it pass over for all that time. Yeah, <laughs> that's nuts. That's a long yeah, I know, time. I, I know it's still nine years till twenty thirty, but I'm not ready. I'm not yeah, ready me neither. yet. I, and I'm, I, I'm getting a little off topic, but I'm wondering how they're going to bring it down. You know? Yeah, I imagine they'll break it down into pieces, won't they? They'll let, they'll release different modules at a time. I, I, I imagine because yeah. they can't let that crash through in one go. Skylab was big, but this is way bigger. So yeah, I don't know how they would do it in one one piece. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out, I guess. Yeah, I guess we will. We'll find out eventually. But some good news. Uh, we recently reported that the Hubble Space Telescope has had some problems, but that they managed to get it back online. 
Well, the long-awaited follow-up, the James Webb Space Telescope, has finally passed all its ground tests and is being prepared to be taken from its current home in California to French Guiana, where it will be launched on an Ariane 5 rocket. The telescope has been in the making for the last 30 years, and it is a joint project between NASA and ESA, uh, the European Space Agency, and will attempt to answer questions about the formation of the first stars and galaxies. I'm so excited about this. So yes. excited about this. Yep. You think of, of the images we're still getting from Hubble and it's old, old, old technology and yet you've got something new they're about to go up. Very excited. Anyway, and yes. finally, if you're into the stock market, then you may have noticed that both Virgin Orbit and Rocket Lab have recently gone public. And if you're anything like me, then you probably don't know what that means. But I think it might mean that we can now buy shares in those companies check the articles in the show notes for more info if you're an investment type. Flight crew, OTC, close and lock your visors, initiate O2 flow. One final thing to discuss before we uh, wind up this week's show. Uh, you may remember our 50th episode a few weeks ago where we spoke to Brittany Phillips about her upcoming analog mission to Mars. Well, she and her crewmates are now safely back on Earth having completed their mission and we've been hearing some wonderful reports and seeing some amazing photos of their experience. We've been sharing them on our socials, so please do check them out. A reminder, we're at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, Brittany even wore her Space and Things t-shirt uh, in their hab, and uh, and she took a Space and Things pin outside on her EVAs, which is very cool. Which very, is very, very cool. cool. Uh, yes. Now, I'm on holiday next week, uh, but we've already got next week's episode recorded so uh the only thing we'll be missing next week is the news uh, but we've got a great in interview next week as well so uh that's all that's all coming uh in episode 54 but the news will return in a fortnight but right now don't forget in space no one can hear you stream space and things has been brought to you by and things production